From the Los Angeles Times, this is Coronavirus in California, stories from the front lines. I'm Gustavo Ariano. It's Monday, May 11th. Today, at one point in mid-March, South Korea and the United States each had 90 deaths total linked to COVID-19. Now the U.S. has over 70,000 deaths, while South Korea's total hasn't even topped 300. How did the country do it? Victoria Kim is a South Korea correspondent for the Los Angeles Times and is based in Seoul, the capital. She was among her earliest reporters to be on the coronavirus beat. Her stories have covered everything from no-touch purchasing to super spreaders. Victoria has a unique vantage point as an American abroad who's currently on the other side of the coronavirus curve. Or so she hopes. Blue Shield of California would like to take this moment to thank the mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, daughters, sons, friends, and heroes on the front line. This fight is tough, but so are you. And we're grateful for your courage and your dedication to keeping us all safe and healthy. Thank you. So, Victoria, what's been so great about your coverage is that you've done everything from a profile of a Christian sect that was one of the early spreaders of coronavirus to stories about voting to even a baseball story. So as a foreign correspondent, how do you decide what stories or angles to cover right now? Um, I think it's an interesting question that we're all dealing with. How do we do our jobs in this situation? The thing that's been interesting about being in Asia during this time has been, especially early on, it sort of felt like we were um, going through some of these things before they were hitting the U.S. It's sort of in hindsight that, that it really feels like that. But the outbreak really hit South Korea earlier on. The peak of the pandemic here was in late February. So there's been this sense of, we're going through some of these things and maybe for our readers back in California, it'll be sort of a, a, an insight into what to look forward to. So lately in, in the past couple of weeks, it's been this sort of, I guess, hopeful story of what it's like to emerge from the epidemic. I, I think everybody here is also very careful to say we don't know if we're in the clear yet. There could still be a second wave of infections, but life is slowly returning to normal here. And a part of that has been about holding a general election, about sporting events going back on. This week, schools are going to reopen, starting with high school seniors. So there's been this sort of sense of this is maybe what you can expect a few weeks in advance. Yeah, at first it was almost like warnings from the future from South Korea. Now it's like this is how it's going to be in the future and very much a harbinger of things, both in the good and the bad. Yeah, and I do think as we were going through it um, here in Asia. We probably didn't know to what extent it was going to hit the U.S. and, and in what way. The U.S. and South Korea had their first cases on the same day, but South Korea is right next to China. And that's true of a lot of Asian countries that had past experiences with, like, say, the SARS outbreak. There was a lot more bracing here when the um, epidemic started spreading outside of China. We were going through things like the testing or how do you deal with you know, social distancing and the outbreak before it really hit the U.S. And I, I don't think we knew to, to what extent it was going to be replicated and also in many ways worse in the West. So South Korea is seen worldwide as an example of how to tackle coronavirus. How did how did they do it? A big part of how South Korea dealt with the epidemic came from its past experience with the MERS outbreak in 2015. That's the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. You know, it, compared to the coronavirus this year, it doesn't feel as bad, but it, it was a huge panic at the time. There were a few hundred cases, I think about 38 deaths at the time, but that was a different type of coronavirus. And the situation at the time was that 
the virus started spreading in 2012. Um, it didn't reach South Korea until 2015. So the country had a lot of time to prepare and yet was, it was really caught flat footed. It didn't have a good handle on where the virus cases were and how it spread. So because of that experience, South Korea had instituted a lot of laws and policies in how to deal with an outbreak like this. And a big part of that was sort of information disclosures and a widespread testing regime. So really early on, when it was just a matter of like one or a handful of cases, South Korea started testing very actively, trying to track and catch every case that they can. So if they knew, you know, patient number one, everybody that had been in contact with patient number one, they found and tested. People who had pneumonia of unknown origin, they found and tested. The super spreader in South Korea was the patient who became known as patient 31, who was a member of the church that you mentioned, the church of Shincheonji. She was at uh, services with several thousand people. They tracked down every single one of those people and tested them for the virus. And, and that was a really early indication that a lot of people who tested positive for the virus didn't have symptoms. And I think that was really key to sort of setting the tone for how South Korea dealt with the outbreak. Do South Koreans take pride that the rest of the world is looking to them as an example of what to do? I think there's a huge amount of pride and especially on the part of the government. You know, a lot of the other governments who are struggling to handle this have been asking for help, both in terms of testing kits or asking for methodology. Some of the things that South Korea did early on, like drive-through testing, has really become a, a standard way of how to uh, deal with this epidemic. And much of it is deserved. It remains to be seen how this all plays out. If there is a second wave of cases, they are still on edge here. But for now, there's a good amount of confidence that the Korean people have in its own government and how it handled the epidemic. And geopolitically, how is that a success playing out in Asia? I think it really remains to be seen how the geopolitical outfall of this epidemic changes just world order. It's going to be really topsy-turvy. South Korea is a small country, and I think a part of um, the government wanting to really showcase and highlight how successful it has been in handling the epidemic, a big part of that is soft power. You know, South Korea is a, a very export-oriented country. It's going to go through some really hard times going forward economically. It has a huge amount of trade with China that has been really impacted by the coronavirus. So there's going to be, a, I think, a lot of jostling for geopolitical positioning in the aftermath of this epidemic and, and South Korea is looking for its place in that as well. This LA Times podcast is presented by Blue Shield of California. The fight is tough, but so are you. Thank you, Frontline. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. So, Victoria, it, has life changed in South Korea? You mentioned earlier things are slowly coming back to normal. But do South Koreans feel like the world has changed forever? Or are they just trying to get back to where they used to be? South Korea, I think, is feeling the changed world as much as everybody else is feeling. It, it's to a different degree here, though. South Korea never went on the type of mandatory lockdown that is happening in various parts of the world, including California. 
because of the rapid speed in which the government appeared to be able to track all the cases and isolate the patients. There was no blanket closure of restaurants or bars. There was no mandatory closure of businesses. Some large offices did work from home for a few weeks, but that has long since returned to normal. The thing that is really different is almost every single person is wearing masks, and that's going to be, I think, a given for some time to come. Yeah, for years or or until there's some sort of vaccine or something. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talking about this because a lot of your stories have dealt with how South Koreans have weathered this on a day to day life. One of the stories I found interesting was uh, you put it out that South Koreans had already kind of been practicing their own social distancing even before coronavirus even hit. Yeah, this was one of the things that I had been thinking about. And I think it's probably on many people's minds in the U.S. and California as well. That with our, you know, new streaming lives and a lot of delivery, we'd already been living in situations that are pretty optimized for less and less contact with people. And that South Korea has certainly been on one extreme of that. I think especially young people lately have become really accustomed to not interacting with people. So, for example, if with, for ordering delivery, they prefer to do it through an app as opposed to calling the restaurant, even if there is a, a surcharge of a, of a few dollars. In the past couple of years, that, that had been a real marketing buzzword, both in South Korea, to a certain extent China, that people want non-contact services so that self-pay kiosks and delivery things that make it so that you don't have to interact with humans and that's been really amplified during the coronavirus situation. I did wonder if this is going to mean that going forward, we're just going to optimize our lives even more for less human contact. And then another story you did, of course, has huge ramifications for the United States in November. An election happened in South Korea and people didn't stay at home. They actually went out in record numbers. Yes, that was really stunning to see especially because I covered the midterm elections in 2018 in the U.S. just before I moved to South Korea. And that was a record turnout for midterm elections. And I think that was about a 53.4% turnout. And what happened in South Korea recently was a midterm election as well. It was a parliamentary election halfway through the president's term. And it was a 66% turnout. And it was the largest turnout in South Korea in in decades and in the middle of an epidemic. And there were a bunch of precautions that were taken. Everybody was required to wear a mask. Everybody was required to stand at least one meter, so a little more than three feet apart from each other at the polling stations. And it's been more than two weeks since election day. So it appears that the election was carried out without triggering a wave of new infections. Yeah, no, that's the same thing that happened in Wisconsin for their election as well. There wasn't that humongous uptick in cases that people were fearing was going to happen. Yeah. And then the other story, of course, that's especially resonating with folks in Southern California because we're missing our Dodgers and to a lesser extent, the Angels, <laughs> the start of baseball season in South Korea. Yes, um, baseball started last Tuesday here. It's been interesting to see the surge in interest in South Korean baseball, which is not exactly a league that had widespread world appeal <laughs> prior to this outbreak. And it's really uh, hit home how much people are missing live sports and are desperate for sporting events. ESPN, the, on the eve of South Korea's baseball season starting, struck a deal to carry some of the games live and uh, some of the games taped on their, their networks. So South Korean baseball is getting a, a, a new following in the U.S. And of course, 
the South Korean league sent players to the majors and vice versa. A lot of players that formerly played in the major leagues come to South Korea to, to, to play for the teams here. So there's a good amount of crossover, familiar faces and names. Um, and for the, for the time being, it's taking place without spectators. And that was really something to see, especially because South Korean baseball fans are crazy. <laughs> they are very rowdy. It has a very robust fan culture involving theme songs for each of the players that everybody knows by heart. There's a lot of fried chicken and beer at the stadiums. It's a very raucous affair. And this week it was very silent. Yeah, and I could only imagine it's almost like a little league game being played in a major league stadium. Yeah, and you could hear a lot of things, which was odd. Uh, one of the pitchers was telling me that during some of the preseason games, he could hear his own spikes go into the dirt. Uh, you can, you know, hear jokes or conversations um, in the field or in the dugout. So as someone who obviously works for an American newspaper, is from the United States and is now in South Korea, kind of in the future of this coronavirus, how do you feel about what's happened to coronavirus in the United States? It's been really devastating to see it play out. And I think especially because of what I was saying earlier about how it felt like Asia went through this and learned some certain things about the virus, but it really just took so much time for that to really hit home in the U.S. And I still remember I was speaking to some experts in the U.S. early on when South Korea was in the thick of things. And this expert told me that he was really worried about testing in the U.S. and especially the decentralized system between the states, how it's going to really vary widely in terms of availability and response. And that what's really needed is a coordinated response. And, you know, it just became reality within a matter of a couple of weeks. It felt really tragic because a lot of it felt like it could be foreseen. You know, it, it is hindsight, but it did feel like there were things that could have been done. So what would be your advice as someone who has lived it, covered it? What advice can you give us to us here in the United States? I, I wish I knew what was, what was in the future. We are still on edge and I think it really needs to be the case that we all remain vigilant for the near future. And it's still too early to say that South Korea is in the clear, but there does seem to be life on the other side of the epidemic. That's probably the best I can do. Since I talked to Victoria on Friday morning, South Korea time, there has been a number of cases linked to nightclubs. To contain the spread and help stop a potential second wave, soul bars and restaurants have closed. It's a cautionary tale about reopening. Meanwhile, coronavirus-related deaths in the United States have now topped 80,000. That's it for today's episode of Coronavirus in California, Stories from the Front Lines. Thanks for listening. Do you have a story you want to share with us? Call our hotline at 213-986-5652 and leave us a message. That's 213-986-5652 or email me, gustavo.ariano at latimes.com. I respond to them all. This podcast was hosted by me, Gustavo Ariano. Our producers are Paige Heimson and Stan Lee. Our senior producer is Rena Palta and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin and our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. If you like our podcast, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special gracias to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Hector Becerra, and Clint Schaaf. For the latest coronavirus stories by my LA Times colleagues, including an up-to-the-minute tracker of cases across California, don't forget to visit our website. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the LA Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Stay safe and see you tomorrow.